You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. This podcast is available on Spotify, iTunes and Audioboom and via the Thoroughly Good blog at www.thoroughlygood.me. Please rate, like and share the podcast via Twitter and Facebook. To get in contact, email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me, message at Thoroughly Good on Twitter or post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page. The 27th Thoroughly Good podcast is rather well-timed as it features the work of Ian Page, conductor of the Mozartists and Classical Opera, whose 27-year plan to perform the music written by Mozart throughout his life, 250 years on, is already underway. Ian and I met at the Southbank Centre's Queen Elizabeth Hall foyer for what turned out to be an epic conversation that took in all manner of subjects in addition to the concert on the 29th of January at the Southbank Centre, the reason we met up in the first place, uh, including the value of honest feedback from non-musicians, Sibelius, Wagner, Britain and lipstick. I say epic because it runs to an astonishing 55 minutes. Apologies for the few moments when there's a little peaking in the audio. We did laugh quite a bit hindsight of oh this is the guy that went on to do this and so with Mozart 250 we've been to each year we do three or four projects of music written in that particular year some of it I mean obviously whenever Mozart wrote a major piece or even semi-major we will do all of all of those pieces but so far um, and now Mozart's just about to become a teenager in the sort of 250 years ago sequence so far the the big benefits, I think, have been just looking sideways. So we've done several UK premieres of pieces by Haydn, even. We did his Applausus last year that had bizarrely never been done in this country before. An opera by Jomelli, an opera by Johann Christian Bach. And all these pieces that... Um, some we're, we're trying to differentiate between pieces that we know Mozart heard and therefore could have been influenced by and pieces that just happened to be written at the same time and therefore reflect what was going on. But don't necessarily reflect on his set of influences. Do you have a slightly obsessive tendency? <laughs> <laughs> the thought that um, comes to mind, because surely you need to... First of all, you've got to love Mozart. I mean, who doesn't yeah. love Mozart? But also, you've got to love Mozart to dedicate 27 years? 27 years. 27 yeah. years. Um, but also to like... I mean, you must be detail-oriented. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, you wouldn't be embarking on this. Well, Are there, you? There's a big... Fi- I, w- I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said so, but maybe okay. the evidence is to the contrary. Are you detail-oriented uh, in different parts of your life? Let's, let's yes. dig there. Well, well I, think, I think detail... I think, I think in a way you can't, be a, you can't be a conductor and suddenly you can't run your own orchestra or organisation without a certain amount of oh, detail. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. That, that's so that, that sort of comes with the work. I mean, with Mozart 250, what I do find is I have this fear of discovering this wonderful, neglected masterpiece that was written 251 a, years ago. Oh, you have you know, a fear. You, that you suddenly miss it. So, so I'm, you know, that you realise that actually in the year that we were covering last year, I suddenly discovered a piece that we should have done that. And, yeah. and if we were to explore, <laughs> if we were to explore that fear just a little bit, how would you know if if that did happen? What would be yeah. the worst way in which that was revealed to you? Would it be somebody else coming up to you and going, "I found this"? It would probably be a CD coming out, wouldn't it? Right. Or somebody else sort of okay. saying, "We found this piece." Um, <laughs> to be honest, to be honest, it wouldn't be a big deal at all. Well, would it? I don't know. And now if you I said found... it, now that you've said it, I'd suggested it would. We could call it Mozart 252 or yes, something. Yes, addendum we? or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. okay. It but could actually, be a DVD extra. That's what you're saying, couldn't it? Yeah, really, I in guess a way. so, yeah. 
Um, but so I think no. I mean, I think joking aside, I think the the important thing is the ability to be able to take an audience on a journey, out twenty seven year journey, <laughs> for, for those that are bold enough and young enough at the start. Um, but and just to to get a feeling of contextualising and, and hearing the other music that he was responding to, and therefore this sort of double edged thing of him being a completely one off genius, but also a product of his time. And of course, both of those are equally true. It is the opposite of binge watching, isn't it? I suppose actually, when I hear you <laughs> talking about it, it makes yeah. me think. Actually, if you hear that music at the pace at which it was written. Yeah, I mean that's essentially mm. what yeah. you're saying. Mm. Um, then actually, you may get a different perspective on it. We tend to get, um, I'm making sweeping generalisations here, but we tend to get Mozart piped into us yeah. a lot yeah. because it's mm. so uh, accessible and easy on the ear. What have you, given that you're five years in so yeah. far, what have you learnt so far? About this, well, it's, it's it's slightly difficult for me because I'd already done a lot of the early Mozart music, so I, I knew a lot about it already. So, in terms of his music, I think it's just reinforced rather than it's been reinforcement rather than discovery, from my personal point of view. But I think the there are a couple of remarkable sort of peaks, I would say, so far. Firstly, his time in London, um, and we did a big sort of four concert weekend festival. Uh, in 2015, which was marking the 250th anniversary of, um, of his time in London, when he wrote his first symphony, his first arias, um, but more importantly, heard a vast amount of music here, and so much music. We, they, um, in those days, they were brilliant at um, keeping records, and so we know exactly what operas were being performed in Drury Lane, in Covent Garden, in Theatre or Haymarket. We often know the names of the singers. Um, the reviews say wonderful things like Miss Thomas wore a blue frock. They don't say anything about the music. So um, it's just like Petrock Trelawney. <laughs> <laughs> exactly the kind of thing you'd say. Um, so we have all this information, and all the music sits in the British Library. I, I was amazed how much of it was there. When did, this, uh, when did the research element start for you? For me, um, well, for, normally it's about... I try to do sort of every two or three years to do a wave of the next sort of five years so I'm somewhere between three and five years ahead but for that Mozart in London um, it was going right to the wire actually because I kept finding things and we're doing a Mozart in Italy project similarly um, in 2020 and that you know, there, there are I think half a dozen operas that we know Mozart heard when he was in Italy most of them survive um, scores survive intact one or maybe two have been performed um, I suppose what I'm driving at is that if you're if it's been going for five years already um, that's five years of performances yeah yeah. presumably you did two or three years of yeah. in-depth research before so this has yeah. actually been going for eight years or yeah, seven or eight yes, years from that point of view yeah and also the other question I get asked a lot is how do I decide what to include and what not to include I'm not going to ask you that no, don't ask me no, that no I won't ask that but it, but it is interesting. I, I have felt very... I've, I've been, in my, my own mind, very clinical about not performing stuff that I don't think is worth hearing. So, so we're never saying, right, we're going to do four projects yeah, every you see, year. You've, ne- you've now said that, and so inevitably, I now then want to say, well, how do you judge what, <laughs> what, is, what is worth hearing and what isn't? 
You could say that, and we could edit that bit out. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you could. No, but is it? Is no, but it, it was the, interesting for the most. Is it musically that when you listen to it, you think actually that doesn't? Because I know that when I listen to to some say if, uh, some music that isn't often performed by Britain, uh, and I adore Britain. I, mm. You know, I'm completely obsessed by Britain. Uh, I listen to some of his works and will just think, actually, yeah, that's 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 not going anywhere. I mean, it's mm. interesting in that it's Britain and not many people have heard it, but musically, it's really not taking me anywhere. Is that is it a similar sort of thing? You occasionally get that with Mozart, even himself. Uh, so we're not saying we're going to perform every note. Um, uh, with the other composers, it's sort of. I mean, the, the back to fears, my, my early fears. Is there another fear coming? <laughs> yeah, I had Great. a big fear. There were two. If, having decided to start the 250 years ago journey when Mozart was eight and when he heard his first symphony, there were two years, 1766 when he was uh, 10 and 1769 when he was 13, where he wrote virtually nothing. And people that you could normally rely on, like Gluck and Haydn, also just happened to write virtually nothing. And I thought, oh, my God, what are we going to do in those years? <laughs> and then in, uh, in 2016, um, I mean, in both cases, we just dig a bit deeper. And in 2016, we did a, a Yomeli opera called Il Volo Gesù that people totally loved. And uh, we would never have done it if Mozart had written three concerts worth of good music that year. Um, and this, this coming year now, um, so I was about to say 2019, 1769, uh, Mozart wrote very little. Um, so we're, doing, we're taking the opportunity to do an opera by Hasse, uh, which was actually written the year before, but was, um, was sort of new. And that, in fact, that's, that, was a, that was one that nearly slipped through. We did an aria from it at the beginning of last year. And it, it was so much better than I had originally thought that we're now doing the whole opera. How do you mean um, it was so much as in it was better received it, it, than it was, you thought? It was, it was, when we started rehearsing, oh. I thought, wow, this is really quite, oh, okay. quite right. Right. better than it looked on the page. And then when we performed it, people loved it. Um, oh, so so that, there's a point there that perhaps is overlooked, which is, of course, you're digging up works which perhaps there are no other recordings. Yeah, yeah. So the Mozart in London, we released, um, we took live recordings from the concerts and released a two, two CD set. And I think 13 of them are not, not recorded before. But I understand, what I'm, what I'm saying is that I understand mm. that, that moment of when you play it for the first time, yeah. that you are making a discovery then. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not there, yeah. it may be a work that isn't yeah. previously available on, uh, Absolutely. to listen to. Yeah. And, you know, normally you can, if you just sort of flick through score, you can work out what's good and what's not. But, but you never quite know until you put it on its feet with, with orchestras and singers or whatever. Um, so, the, so there is that. And there's, yeah, there's the practical element of which... I mean, what we've, we've just been doing a recording over the weekend. And um, when you sort of schedule a recording, you, you have to do the sort of minute details of, OK, we've got seven minutes to record each minute of music or whatever it is and you, oh, okay. you, you, know, you have to just do you'd have to know exactly how long each piece is and how to divide up the available time Ooh. um and oh, actually <laughs> taking the joy out of <laughs> things the glamour, really? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay but then when you come to it what i found at the weekend was there was a massive difference between we we did an aria by trietta that had never been recorded before never i don't think has been performed recently and you know, in recent decades, um, 
and it took so much longer because it just wasn't it was it was interesting music the final product was great but it wasn't written in a sort of masterful way so it took much longer to get under the skin of it I need and more then detail but we... I'm, I'm now okay. so I'm, I'm fascinated yeah. what, so yeah. were you playing from original manuscripts no well I edited it from okay from that um but it was just that the language was a bit more enigmatic, that it didn't lie under the fingers technically for the players as, as, as much as sort of good stuff was. And then immediately after that, we recorded some Haydn, and Haydn just felt so beautifully tailored. We'd, we made the time up instantly. I'm interested in uh, actually hearing that. I'm interested in how playing something that demands a different kind of focus but because it's perhaps... I'm kind of making this up on the fly, yeah, so correct yeah, me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But playing something like, was it Trieta? Yeah. Mm. Uh, which you said used a different language and didn't quite work in places. That I'm, I'm interested in how you go from that, that experience to something like Haydn, which presumably... Beca- it's a bit like meditation, that actually when, mm. you, when you force yourself to do something that is difficult and then you return to something that is more familiar, mm. then presumably that can, that can have an influence on the performance as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it, it, it's interesting, I think what I came away from that experience realising was that actually the great music is also, it, it, it's, it, it's challenging in a different way. You know, there's, there's always more depth to it. You can spend years sort of working out what, little details of what would make it better and what creates the sort of truth more, you know, gets to the kernel of the piece more, I guess. Um, Whereas with the Trieta, it is beautiful music actually, and I, you know, I, at the moment I almost feel too close to it. You know, I may get the edit back from the CD in a couple of months' time and think, oh, that's really rather good, good music. But it was it was hard work, and and actually I said to the players, you know, if we if we'd done six operas by Trieta collectively, we'd we'd know all these things. I mean, it's just little details like different composers just use different. Trieta seemed to use the word dolce suite. Um, to mean piano, so he often, you know, there were some really oh, weird okay. markings, and, and <coughs> how can we play that? Which would be misleading, yeah, in, a, in an instinctive in another, way, yeah. Yeah, 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 okay. So you, you know, you just have to find, and that's that's always been something that's fascinated me. Of course, you know, to um, with, without getting too close, Haydn and Mozart could be seen to be slightly interchangeable, sort of similar style. And, and I'm just in really fascinated by the differences. I think the differences tell us so much more than the similarities. Do you experience any kind of um, personal tussle with uh, wanting to represent the composer authentically? Especially if it's, if uh, it's a relatively unknown work. So some people I've spoken to that have said... No, I'm I'm not bothered about authentic. When I say not bothered, that yeah. isn't strictly what they said. But but the yeah. authentic performance um, pressure isn't quite so great for them. It's about expressing the music in a slightly different way. Yeah. I'm wondering whether yeah. if you're going into a lot of detail and covering things, whether there is a um, a pressure to perform it authentically. I. I wouldn't use the word, for my own personal perspective, I wouldn't use the word tussle because it doesn't feel like a tussle, but I do okay. feel very strongly that if you really go to the bother of finding out in detail how they did things, how the instruments worked, what they expected, what an audience expected originally, and all these things, um, then the music lifts off the page in a very different way. And... 
And yet, I mean, here am I as exponent of, you know, our orchestra plays period instruments, we're, you know, we're very much historically informed. But for me, what I love about period instruments is it makes, to me, it makes the music more modern. Rather than, so it's, it's very much, it's, it's not in any way, I sometimes get referred to as a sort of like a scholar, and I don't really, I, I always shy away what from is that. Your, what is your beef with the word scholar? Because I did, I did wonder this on the way here. I don't know, I just find it, I, it, there's, there's somehow, I think as a practitioner, it, it feels a bit sort of um, <laughs> corner. I don't know, I don't know what it is. I, What's the connotation then for you? I think the connotation is, is that it's, it, there's something dry and academic about, about things, and actually... No, that, that's, and that's lovely. This, 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 but that's a lovely thing, world. isn't it? <laughs> no, no, it is, but I, th- I think the, the, the excitement is, is when the scholarship and the... And the performing join up um, so I have I mean I have several people who who I will turn to for scholarly advice and stuff who, who I've, have become friends over the years and who like the work we do and are very supportive and therefore always happy to offer advice but then sometimes I, so I will learn from them and then I will say something that I've learned from them and then I get described as a scholar. I think that's where the discomfort Great. comes from. <laughs> Great. So there's, been, there's an imposter thing going on. Okay. Now, actually, hearing you talk about that reminded me that um, certainly I've noticed over the past couple of years since I've been recording these and writing more about classical music that there is, there is a hierarchy within the classical music world and possibly in the opera world, although I think it's probably black, uh, less in the opera world, to do with knowledge. So yeah. if you have studied something for a long time and if you are a perceived expert and recognised by your peers that you're an expert, then um, then that's a good thing. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. and if, you, if anybody within that bubble considers themselves not to have as much knowledge as that person over there, then it's like, well, no, I'm not an expert. And, yeah, I, and yeah. I, think that's, um, I think that's a great thing, but also I think, it's, I think it contributes to the... the difficulty that the genre has yeah absolutely because there I is an assumption really point. that you need to have loads of knowledge yeah. and actually yeah. i don't i still and like also, it uh, and i can still talk about it completely and and none of us know anything until we no, exactly. read about it yes. or hear it or whatever yeah, yeah. I'd, have, I'd far rather have people talk to me about things yeah. than me having to go to a library and read about it yeah. frankly let them do the work yeah. and also i think we remember things or at least <laughs> i think that's the way my mind works um if we're interested in them so I, I could try to learn, you know, the, I don't know, the, the chemical ele- element table and stuff, and I'd, I'd just I'd stare <laughs> at it and I'd say, what, what does this mean? Um, well, I know there are, for yeah, some people, they'd find it incredibly easy because they're interested and therefore yes. the memorising yes. becomes straightforward. Have them expend all the energy on that. Yeah. Um, I know my wife gets really fed up that I know a lot of sort of sports statistics and things. Why can't you just apply that to the stock market? That would be so much better. (laughs) So you like sport? Yeah, I do, yeah. (laughs) What sport? A a lot of sport, really. Um, (laughs) But I don't know, it's just just something that I can switch off. So were you good at sport at school? I was uh, was in my sort of early teens, and then I sort of... um, I don't know. I, maybe, maybe, yeah. Maybe the music sort of took what over. What did you then. do at A level? Uh, a level, I did English, music, and history. Okay, so humanities. And, yeah, largely. Yeah. Were you a prefect? Uh, I think. Yeah, I was, and then I didn't want to be. Prefects got to wear coloured shirts. Right. 
And so I remember having finding a shirt that was white, which everyone oh, else wore. Rebel. But no, rebel. no, but it had tiny little marks. So it was, it was sort of, it didn't look like I was a prefect. And then you some were a spotted because oh, well, well, because I was an early one. I was sort of like six months earlier than I right. might naturally have been. But then again, I wasn't really. Um, I'd say I was sort of first eleven material without being captain material. I was a little bit of a rebel. I right. Think. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and did you get a blue Peter badge? No. That's all right. That's no. Fine. Not that it's no. a competition. Um, so uh, um, I feel as though we've skated off. The no, we were, we were somewhere really interesting, um, weren't we? We were on the whole knowledge. The yes, thing. the whole, the, the, yeah. the whole, uh, essentially, a sort of a snob. There is a snobbery yeah. around knowledge, and I don't mm. think it's just about uh, snobbery to do with it being classical music. I notice it in the classical music bubble, and it pains me. It really mm. does, because because a lot of the time I find myself wanting. To, this will sound a bit weird. I, f- I find myself wanting to be accepted by the classical music cognoscenti. I probably mm. am, but I don't realise it, um, and. But I see a lot of sort of grandstanding and a lot of sort of wearing knowledge as a badge yeah. of honour, and and I think that gets in the way. Personally. Completely. But maybe that's my maybe it's my uh, issues that I'm projecting. I think they're, they're from, for me they're two quite different things. One is that from the ordinary classical music loving punter, the number of times people say to me, "Oh, I love that. Oh, I really I'm really interested in this piece," but then I, I don't know anything. And then yes, there's some oh, disparaging, yes. and I think I think that's a, I, that makes I love, really sad. Yeah, but I always find that that sort of um, feedback is incredibly valuable from people that don't think that their opinion is valid. I find it massively helpful. It's the people that sort of think they know everything about everything that that I, I would more readily dismiss. But how, is it, how does it help you then? Um, the fact that they go, oh, well, I don't know enough. Because it's sort of honest. I actually, oh. when I, I used to come, I, I used to, um, if I was doing an opera, quite often I would invite, if there was sort of open dress rehearsal, I would make a point of inviting some non-musician friends. Because generally I found that their feedback was, was just more useful. Because they're much, you know, it's, it's much more So you feed off an elemental. openness and curiosity yeah. and sort of yeah. appetite. Yeah. Um, but then the other thing about knowledge is I find that knowledge is my only way of achieving confidence. So I think there are some conductors that just have an inbuilt, <laughs> you know, sort of like a, like, a, like a sort of BMW inbuilt right of way type thing. Is that not your and approach? It's not, well, it, not how you I work. just can't do it. I, you know, <laughs> right. I, I've sort of accepted that. I'm not really. I, but you know, if, if I'm going to get in front of an orchestra, the, I need to know that piece much better than yes. them. I need to have thought about all the issues about you know how I want to do it and and so it's the, it's the time and the investment in finding out the information that that justifies my my job I think so so if I if I don't acquire knowledge about the repertoire that I'm working on there's a there's a fundamental <laughs> level of fraud going on <laughs> So that's, I like that. that. I like that. <laughs> I'm learning about this because I don't want to be a fraud. <laughs> this is really good. Um, how? T- let's talk about your relationship with Mozart. That makes it mm. sound really quite. Uh, <laughs> but I'm interested in how. Um, so, for example, when I worked in Oldborough, I bought 
um, I think it was Humphrey Carpenter's book, A Big, yeah. Thick. Do you know it? The, the blue. The about, oh. I got a paper about the blue, yeah. blue oh, cover. Oh, yeah. God, it's an amazing. It's like a Bible for me. And yeah. it's full of, I think it's full of stuff. And I was interviewed detail. by him once. Who? Humphrey Carpenter. Humphrey Carpenter, yeah. What was he like? Uh, I mean, lovely. he's a bit of a hero, yeah. personally. Yeah, lovely. He, he, was, he was guest presenting um, in tune. And I went on and he, yeah, he asked me questions about Mozart. And he, he, he seemed to, he seemed to love, I mean, unfortunately, Britain left a lot of detail, because I imagine that he was a bit of a hoarder. Uh, mm. But uh, clearly Carpenter loves detail, because there's loads <laughs> of detail in the book. Yeah. Um, but when I read that book, I felt as though, and this might be partly because I worked there, I felt as though I knew Britain, even yeah. though he died ten years before, in a way that, that no other biography before or I think since yeah. will ever achieve. Mm. And so I, I feel as though I have a connection with him. It's a bit weird, yeah, but no, I do. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm wondering whether if, if you're going in deep with uh, a particular composer and all of his works over an extended period of time, you are surely going to have some kind of relationship with that individual. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure... It's the, the whole Amadeus thing about you know, the, the music versus the person and trying to separate the two. I, I, I'm not sure I, you can even make that distinction. You just sort of wade in and the, the music is so much part of... Well, it's what's left of the, of the personality, mm. isn't it? So that's, what do you, I suppose I'm interested in knowing what do you, how do you describe him. I've, I'm, my assumption is that you have some kind of relationship with the idea of Mozart because of this work yeah I'm wondering I, if that's the case and if it is what is how would you describe him what do you know of him what do you think of him as an individual I feel as though I've completely floored you with that question yeah well it's an interesting because you know that whole you know who would your ideal dinner guests be and I you know it's a bit like I'd, that I'd, but slightly more sophisticated to, yes no, <laughs> no, no absolutely <laughs> yeah, thank you but I would you know I'd I'd, I've, I do often think, oh, I'd, you know, I'd love to be able to ask him that. Of, often practical things about, you know, what, what did you mean by that marking or what do you, you know... Okay. They're just practical things about how to perform the music. Um, but I guess my, uh, my overriding impression is I'd, I've, I don't think I've ever separated him as a person from the music. I've never sort oh, okay. of thought, would, okay. how would I get on with him? What would he be like? What, um, I mean, I guess... I mean, it comes back a little bit, you know, a bit of a rebel. Um, uh, knowing, knowing his own worth um, and being quite... I mean, I don't know, I, I just think that the, the innate sort of... the Somebody... Um, in fact, it was Richard Strauss's father, who was a horn player in the Vienna Phil, um, once said that if you paid... A modern, by which I guess he meant 1890s or something, um, copyist to write out the complete works of Mozart, it would take them about as long as he had from the beginning of his career to the end. In other words, it's just absolutely head to paper. Um, and there are very few manuscripts that have sort of Beethovenian scrawlings, scrawling outs and things. And when there are, they're often, and in fact, the two that I'm aware of, uh, he couldn't decide whether something in 6-8 started on, on that half of the bar or on that half of the bar. It's something that, you know, we, as, as a listener, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference, but he just wanted to know how to package the, you know, 
where the, where the, <laughs> the sort of mm. wrapping paper started and finished. Um, so he's sort of. Um, Do you like him? Yeah, I know that's a ridiculous. Yeah, I know it's yeah. a ridiculous question, but I wonder whether. Yeah. You do. No, well, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd have to. I think, for me, I think, just... I'd, I, <laughs> Wagner. You'd have a problem with Wagner. Wagner, <laughs> I decided, when I was doing postgrad at the Royal Academy of Music here in London, that I needed to overcome my, not fear, just lack of knowledge of Wagner. I thought, right, I need to just get into this, because you know, most, most other major opera composers I, I liked and knew a bit about... Um, and I thought, right, first thing I'm going to do is read a book about it. And it was, it was a blunder. Yeah. I just <laughs> don't did do it. That. Yeah. <laughs> really don't do that. And yeah, I, I found it really. No, you hard. have to go in the, with the music first. Yeah. Otherwise, the, the world, for me, the world of Wagner was incredibly intimidating. Mm. And, and there was, um, we did it at A level. We, we spent hours analysing Tristan Corn. Why are we bothering with this? I don't understand. Um, and actually, you have to experience the whole thing as a whole yeah. before mm. um, you have, or at least I do, before I had the motivation to go in with any detail. I've taken mm. over your point, I'm sorry. No, no, it's fine. But actually, funnily enough, with Tristan, to <laughs> extend yes. the diversion even further, um, I was once uh, conducting a, on a, tour, a sort of UK tour and found myself in Malvern. Mm-hmm. of a free morning with loads of amazing second-hand bookshops. Mm. And I came across a second-hand score of Tristan and just opened, just stood there, opened page one and looked through the first five or six pages and it was, it was like being totally transported. Mm. It's, it's, you know, that, that one, of, it's, was it Schnabel or somebody who said you know, great music is always greater than it can ever be performed? I can't remember who said that, but it, it, it was that sort of thing. You know, I, it just... I felt totally elevated by it, and that's that. I've never really picked up on that. Maybe, maybe I was another time in life. I, I just didn't. I didn't understand the point. I didn't understand why people mm. spent so much time poring over it. Um, mm. I'm naturally impatient. Uh, I, I ask you that about Mozart. <laughs> naturally uh, impatient and five-hour operas don't really go well oh, together, do they? Uh, um, uh, I ask you that about Mozart because when I read the the Britain biography. Uh, I remember thinking, actually, I'd really like to meet him because I don't think that he was very nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I suppose that's what I'm driving at. But it sounds like you say it sounds as though the music is it's it's all about the music. You don't split the, the two up. No, I don't think I do. No. Do you think that will change? Um, I'm not suggesting not really. that it has, I th- it has I think to, but it's one of those. I guess you always sort of know. It's like if someone, if someone's not a very nice person, but in a job that's really important to you, you you somehow black out the fact that they're not very nice, don't you? I think there's something. <laughs> maybe you know. This is so getting a little bit too revealing. <laughs> not really. No, going I think if, um, if I, I guess what I mean is that if. If he hadn't written on that music, I might be less interested in what made him tick. Yes, okay, that's that. Yeah, is that enough of an escape from that, that hole? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although at the same um, time, interestingly, I'm sorry to keep bringing it back to, back to Britain, but actually, when I listen to Britain's music, there is something spiky and dark, and mm. uh, perhaps not uncompromising, but certainly sort of, you know, I hear in his music and his sparse orchestration a sort of a um, 
almost a bitter resignation. Yeah. yeah. Um, as in, you know, life is a bit hard and you mm. might as well know the truth. <laughs> yeah. I quite like that, which is possibly mm. why I find him slightly more fascinating. But I think also there are two, very, two quite polarised stances. I think there are, there are some musicians that are amazing musicians because they can't communicate in any, any other way. And I think maybe Britain was a bit like that, whereas Mozart, I think, was was more he music happened to be his vehicle for communicating um, so I think he was probably more of a communicative uh, there is something that I did definitely want to ask you which was given that you are committed to your 27 year plan yeah. um, what brought you to this composer in the first place is it just that there's a lot of repertoire. We're going to plough our way through it. No, it was it was a number of things. Um, I think when I when I was I remember when in, when I was at school, my favourite composer was Sibelius, and I I remember used, I used to think I'm gonna I've I've got to champion this composer. So maybe that the idea okay. of finding somebody to champion came from there. Um, where did and, the Sibelius? Th- sorry, I'm now interrupting yeah. your anecdote. But but yeah. where did the Sibelius thing come from? It came from. Uh, being with my mum and dad when I was 12, being in Salisbury for a day, going into a CD, uh, CD shop, really? record shop, <laughs> finding an LP of John Pritchard conducting Sibelius 2, reading the back cover, I think, I've never heard of this guy, he sounds quite interesting, taking it home, listening to it, putting it on again, putting it on again. And that was the first time that you'd heard Sibelius? Yeah, yeah. And then I got a and I'd been nagging my mum and dad. I wanted an atlas. That I'd seen this atlas that had um, lots of photos as well as maps and little potted histories of each country. And beca- precisely because of Sibelius, I looked up Finland. It was about the first thing I looked up. And it said, it said how many thousands of lakes it had and had some amazing photos. And I thought, oh, I like this place. It looks great. And then it said, Finland has had has fought 72 wars against Russia oh. and has lost them all. <laughs> and I thought, I, like, oh, I really laugh. like this place. <laughs> wow, so you want to be an advocate. You're curious about things really you haven't heard of before. But, but 19th you century want to champion music. the underdog. That, that's yeah. your thing, isn't it? Which isn't exactly Mozart, is it? So I don't know where that came from. Okay. It's, um, but, but 19th and early 20th century repertoire was my sort of natural centre of gravity. Um, and then, as a pianist, I just sort of grew up as a pianist, and I, I played a lot of. I loved Beethoven. Didn't really play Mozart sonatas. Didn't really get them. Uh, liked Haydn as well, but so so already, you know, Mozart wasn't as high as those two. Um, and then it was. I think it was through the piano concertos. Um, I I just sort of. It was when Murray Pryor was recording with them, with, with the English Chamber Orchestra, and I, I bought all those, by this stage, cassettes. Um, and every time a new one came out, I bought it and listened to it and was really riveted, really by his playing and the, the way he shaped phrases and just beautiful, just effortless music-making. Um, so that got You were a fanboy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then... Uh, did my oh and then yeah when I was at university in York Roger Norrington came to conduct the University Chamber Orchestra and conducted the Eroica 
and I had an old Eric Leinsdorf LP that took about 70 minutes and he took about 48 minutes and I thought <laughs> I, these, these pieces I said, this I like I've seen the light. You know, it was it was so <laughs> elemental and it made total sense and then suddenly you know this was incredibly exciting music and that, that was the introduction to period instruments so that came before the introduction to Mozart in a way I mean obviously you know I love music and Mozart was famous so I, I knew so was the Roger Norrington thing, uh, was that before he did, was that with the London Classical Players? Yeah, yeah. So well was no, it was, it was when he was recording with, it, it was when he was doing all that work, but he just came, out, came up to conduct the university orchestra. So was that around about the same time that he recorded the Berlioz, Symphony Fantastique? Uh, yeah, it, that w- it would be probably just before then. Yeah. Because I remember hearing that at university in a, in a music lecture, um, music history lecture with Dennis McColden uh, oh, yeah. and and I remember him playing that and just thinking bloody hell it's quite I mean I'd, yeah. I'd never heard music like yeah. that but yeah, that, yeah. that moment of hearing period mm. performance for the first time was yeah. exhilarating yeah. which is kind of yeah. what you and that for me is actually a big thing that whole thing of taking a piece of music and realising how it could sound the, and, and how, how because I think on one level you know there's so many people that want to be musicians and want to be conductors and stuff that if you if you don't have something that you really feel driven to in terms of what the music should sound like you know nobody wants yet another Jupiter symphony no, or, no indeed I'd agree with you <laughs> the world doesn't need another recording of that it needs yeah. to be something different something yeah. special so 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 that that was a real eye opener and I think gradually the more I got into it the more I, I sort of started getting a bit zealous about you know this isn't how Mozart should sound um, and then there was one really big or a double influence um, when I left music college I got a job on the music staff at Scottish Opera and was was playing piano for rehearsals and uh, there was a really bad Don Giovanni that put me off the piece for 20 years and I conducted it for the first time two years ago and it was like oh my god there's a third de Ponte this is amazing but I literally thought I can't go near that piece has been ruined for me uh, why had it um, without mentioning names or indeed responsibilities why was it why was it ruined in the first place it was just so badly done it was, a bit done. It was a bit it, well it, it was you know I think the, you know it was just like oh yeah let's let's how does this piece go yeah I'll listen to oh. my I'll listen to my record yeah it goes like this yeah why do you do it like that oh, oh I don't know that's what they did on my record yeah, it's all just a bit ugh. um just you know, very disappointing yeah especially as someone fresh out of yes. college wanting wanting to um, uh I'm sorry to go and, back again but yeah. the, 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 the when you heard Sibelius for the first time you were how old uh 12 I think yeah, because so I was resp- a quiet, I was a chorister. I was a chorister at Westminster Abbey. But that does suggest that you responded to imagery, because if you were looking at an LP, if you'd not heard of Sibelius before, yeah. and you went into a into a record mm. shop and you saw an album that, that with a the picture stimulus, of a lake. And yes, forest. exactly. The yeah. stimulus was an image on an album. Yeah, mm. and then what then followed was I've not heard of this person before, and I want to find out more. I'm also interested in how, when you were talking about the audiences who were really valuable, this is earlier on, I realise we're jumping around, you just need to cling on. Um, (laughs) uh, When you're talking about audiences whose feedback you found really valuable, Mm. you said that you liked those people who were honest uh, and sort of curious and open-minded, which is essentially what you described you were when you described an LP, when you found found Sibelius. Yeah, and also I think that that's interesting in that Sibelius for me is the most his music is the most closely aligned to his 
country, or his not even his country, his his uh, um, landscapes. You know, you you can hear you can hear the sea, or you can hear the forest, or you can hear the wind. And mm. it, it's really that. I think that's that's why for me. Sibelius became Finland. I don't think of Mozart as being Austria. My partner, who I've been with for just over 20 years, um, didn't really listen to classical music until I came along. I showed him the light. And uh, he has tried desperately to get into Sibelius. And every time he listens to the Sibelius symphony, he says, I just, I just don't really understand where it's going or what the point of it is, really. So I think it's, uh, it's a Marmite thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So the Mozart thing. To come yeah, back sorry. To, yes. Yeah. So when I was at Scottish Opera, I had the bad Don Giovanni experience, and then I was playing for there was a new production of Clemenza di Tito, which I'd heard at the Opera House two years before, and thought, oh my god, I thought Mozart was interesting and good and dyna- dynamic and dramatic, and it, I was just so bored. I thought this is a complete dinosaur of a piece. So I didn't have very high expectations. Um, it was a conductor called Nicholas McEgan, who's a Handel specialist, uh, was conducting this this production at Scottish, and um, completely revelatory. Loved it in the same way that Norrington sort of made me see the, the Beethoven light. Had you thought um, beforehand it's to do with the work and not to do with the performance? I hadn't made the distinction, okay. and I, you know, it, it's a very difficult one to see clearly, isn't it? Because now, oh, yes. yeah. I have, even in the course of my Mozart two fifty research. Um, dismissed certain pieces on the basis of bad recordings and thought, well, that's a boring piece. And then you find the score and you think, well, actually, yes. that's what happened with the Hassa. Yes. Um, I'm often surprised about how people who, who listen to recordings go, oh, yeah, that doesn't really move me. And, and I think, yeah, it's actually, it's because you're right, it's because actually you're listening in, in an active way. You don't realise it, but you are listening to something that probably wasn't very good. Yeah, yeah. Or that particular yeah. performance wasn't. I've interrupted you again. Yeah. You must no, no, continue. No, no. <laughs> Otherwise, we're so going to then, on, so that really opened my eyes, and I and I thought this is great music, and I I just got really into, and I loved the fact that it, you know, there there was flexibility for cadenzas, you know, all just realizing, you know, there one of the better recordings at the time of Clemenza was uh, Janet Baker mm-hmm. um, singing Vitellia, and there wasn't a single appoggiatura in the rest of the evening. It just sounded wrong. And, and have, just having got used to the, the, the language of the rest of the... So I no thought, decoration? No just decoration, just no, nothing. Just, yeah. OK. And so that whole... The, the element of freedom within that and the, and the, the increased involvement, in a way, of the, of the performers in terms of bringing, bringing the piece off the page um, really appealed to me. And then uh, Nick McGigan invited me the following year to assist him at Jotningholm's amazing rock theatre in Sweden. And that was possibly the biggest influence of all because we did this average piece. It was um, Una Cosa Rara by Martini Soler, which is only really famous because it's, Mozart quotes it in the, um, in the finale of Don Giovanni. And he quotes it because he was bitter, because it was more successful than it, it threw Figaro, it, Figaro, Figaro closed because this new piece was along. Wow. Um, and it was really popular in its time. Um, not, you know, an okay piece, but we, record, we, we rehearsed it for five weeks in the main Stockholm Opera House. All Swedish cast, average piece. I remember thinking after five weeks, this has been, I've enjoyed it, learnt a lot, but it's no great shakes. We moved into this 18th century Baroque theatre. It just totally took um, off. 
totally took off. The piece made sense, the singer sounded so much better, the period instruments fitted. And, you know, and, so there was that, something about location yeah. that brought it. Yeah, and that made me... It was that... It made me realise that period instruments are actually only part of part of it. You know, if if you if you use period instruments in in a you know a car park, then of course it's not going to work. And the, the, these theatres were so you know as an opera company, I think in a way your your instrument, your your strad or otherwise is is the theatre that you perform in. Says a guy who we has a, to, a homeless opera company. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we tend to we tend to take music out of its context, and and by doing that and putting it in a slightly as much as I love most concert halls, they are essentially clinical spaces. And the same mm-hmm. the studios are clinical mm-hmm. spaces in order to get, quote, perfection. Um, and it takes some of the spirit out of it, I think. Yeah. That's essentially yeah. the I mean, buildings have a, Good buildings have an energy, don't they, yeah. in the same way? And I think there are some... But I they can... are still essentially hermetically sealed boxes, aren't they? That's, yeah. That's, yeah. that's essentially what concert halls are. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very big, sweeping statement. Um, I've interrupted you once again. Is there any more to tell me about how well, you came no, to that, that, so that experience really sort of took the lid off for me. And, and that's when I, when I left college. Um, I, I was sort of... I knew I wanted to get into opera. Not, partly, I'd, my degree had been in English, in literature. So it, I think the opera element it was a natural fusion of those two things. Um, and I... I wanted, I, I don't know what it was, I think it was, it wasn't so much that it was opera as that it was, it was just music that enabled you to tell a story somehow, I think that was what, what really attracted me. And I spent 18 months freelancing and it just happened, the way things unfolded, that over these 18 months I alternated between operas by Mozart and by Britain. Um, and it was the most amazing time because I think they, both those two composers for me, I haven't done any Britain professionally for a long time, but the, the two of them, especially doing them back to back and sort of alternating with each other, they, I, what I found about them was that they both just resonate beyond, you know, every time you come back to, a, to, to one of those pieces, you, you find new stuff. Mm. You know, some, sometimes, I mean, I love, I love Puccini as well, actually, um, but I think once once you've put a Puccini opera together, it sort of stays together, and you know you, that that's how it is. Um, and I happen to love it. Some people maybe less so, but it but it still basically stays the same way. I think every time, particularly with the De Ponte operas, every time you come back to them, I find, oh my God, how did I miss that? Or how you know why can I see that? And there's just endless a lifetime of discovery just in terms of how to lift them off the page. What was the first Britain opera that you sort of that? Lucretia, actually. That was the one that you connected with? Yeah. Well, but I, maybe just because it was the first I worked on. I remember my mum and dad coming to <laughs> see the show and thinking, well, I didn't really like that music. <laughs> and I, you know, the difference, you know, having oh, spent, I think it's an amazing having spent score. six weeks on it. And, mm. Yeah. I think, yeah. It, I think it demand... Uh, similarly, I, <coughs> I worked on a production where I was in and out of the auditorium uh, and in and out of the rehearsal space a lot, so I heard snippets of music, and a lot of the score is essentially sort of series of snippets of music in order to illustrate mm. things that are going on in the story. Uh, and I think over a three or four week period, it just embeds embeds itself yeah. in your consciousness, mm. and so uh, it can. Uh, and it's a very dark story, and and, yeah. um, mm. and threatening, threatening music. 
Mm. Um, but also, I'd, I'd say, okay, right. Okay, are you going to say sa- something? No, soundbite time now. Two operas that infuriate me more than any others about miscomprehension. <laughs> Lucretia, everyone says, what an awful libretto. It's not. It's, Why it's, do they say it's an awful libretto? Have you not heard people saying that? People always well, say I, I mean, that. Well, I don't know. <laughs> people don't tend to. I, I obviously mix with the wrong people. <laughs> but no, unless they've got People a are always dismissing it as being, you know... But on what uh, grounds, though? Um, poetic, flowery. Uh, and, like, Italian isn't. <laughs> um, I mean, Gosh. oatmeal slippers of time is maybe, a, you know, <laughs> maybe that's but that putting things I out don't a think, bit. But if, you know, I, I, if you're really going to rip it to shreds on that basis, then there are countless other yeah, librettos yeah, that you yeah. could do that to as well. Yeah, yeah. And also, what's the one with the... Is it Don Giovanni where, where, where the central character... I really don't know opera very well. The central character descends to hell or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if we're going to analyse librettos, <laughs> I question whether that's plausible. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And the other one is because we've had Tote, which people talk about as being artificial, and it's just, that to me is totally missing the point because it's so. It's just snobbery. It's snobbery. Anyway, have we got to the end of your um, how you discover come to Mozart? Mozart? Well, no, I think, I think it, it evolved from there. I think from, from there to deciding to set up a company specialising in Mozart was, I think the final piece of the jigsaw was starting to listen to lots more and getting more and more annoyed by the way people played Mozart. Right. And for me, I, I've only recently been able to clarify what it was that bothered me. And I think, I think the periodismant thing is a massive thing, actually, because the, for me, the... the biggest thing is that the old instruments have a much quicker decay so you in don't get sound yeah so yeah. you don't get balance issues in the way that you do with modern instruments so you can be really dramatic and punchy orchestrally and and full committed without the singers complaining or the audience complaining that they mm-hmm. can't hear the singers mm-hmm. the moment you do wrote up with modern instruments particularly opera i guess i'm talking about there's this thing about Oh, Mozart's so precious that you have to you have to perform it in a very sort of precious, backed-off way, and I think that's the, the whole chocolate box thing has come mm. from that. And for me, it totally misrepre- misrepresents the music, which is just so elemental and, and dramatic in every facet. Um, and you know, this whole thing of Mozart being all very sweet and nice, sweet, and, yeah, yeah, mm. is, is for me completely wrong. So, so I guess that that was the of all the things, it's probably the biggest thing to me, just this, you know, trying to really lift off pieces like, well, funnily enough, I was about to say pieces like a Domineo, which is one of the few Mozart operas we haven't done yet. But, you know, I think that some of those pieces are just so, there's so much to find in them. Uh, you saying that reminds me of, uh, on a previous podcast, interviewed Richard Tonietti the Australian mm. Chamber Orchestra and because I was interviewing him I listened to Mozart 40 I think it was Mozart 40 those of in the last movement towards the conclusion uh, there's a lot of chromatic writing I think it's number 40 uh, I'd heard that simply loads I mean mm. loads before then and then when I heard that production uh, that, that recording um it was transformed. It made mm. it sounded hard and raw, and mm. 
and uh, not in any way like Mozart at all, and it made sense. Yeah. You know, yeah. it had life yeah. and it had a personality. Uh, yeah. I'm basically echoing what, you're, yeah. what you've already said. But and also, the, you know, the yeah. lack of vibrato can be, is, is, is like, it's like, it's like not wearing lipstick. No, it's, it's just much more, you know, if you have to wear lipstick, <laughs> so, so I was really struggling. There we go. With it. Um, you're saying so vibrato is like wearing lipstick. Yeah, it is, isn't it? it it's it's co- it's covering up. Essence. Oh, you've got to be really careful now. I do. <laughs> yeah. um, but okay, fine, fine. Um, no, 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 you know, generally, you know, the, the whole thing of of having the courage not to wear makeup. You, you, there's a. A it's an adornment. Beauty. It's an adornment where, where yeah. you're, you're and, and it's a perceive, it's yeah. a perception of yeah, oh, okay. I'm going to look more beautiful if I do this. And actually, the music. I think we should get away from makeup. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the music. Neither of us are experts on makeup. <laughs> I suggest. <laughs> <laughs> There's something that just honest and, and vulnerable. I mean, I, I for me, vulnerability is a, a massively important thing in terms of musical performance. If, you know, if you don't have that, then it, it will only reach people's hearts to a certain degree. So you've picked up, in this interview, you picked up honesty, curiosity and vulnerability. That's kind of what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Both from audiences yeah. and players and yeah. music. Yeah. And then with Mozart, there's one other big, big thing, which, again, I didn't identify as a thing initially. Um, and we have this wonderful chairman who, who adores Mozart. And... Uh, he said to me, it sounds... It's, yeah, it's peaceful, yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, in that case, yeah. Um, and he said to me once, uh, you know, knowing that I was of the same opinion, um, but he said, if, if more people listened to Mozart, there would be fewer wars in the world. Oh, wow. And, and it, it's easy for that, taken out of context, to sound very sort of flippant and... What was his line of work? Uh, nothing to do. I mean, well, he, he, he's a. I don't know what this he, is. He's, what he's, is a, this? he's a he's a businessman who works. Yeah, I mean, okay. bank, banking software was fine. Okay, but he's he's um he's he's a rather wonderful man. That he's the the older he gets, the more he wants to make a difference to the world becoming a better place. And he and it, when you step back and look at Mozart's operas in isolation because operas have stories therefore you can cling on more clearly to what they're about the, there's almost always there's an over, overriding and overwhelming sense of forgiveness with the sort of theme of forgiveness and I think what often happens with these big an opera of course you know, it's tussling with big things because that's why you think about it rather than talk it um, the, this, you know, you see if you turn on the news at any given moment in history, there's always the, these sort of massive conflict in, in the world through one side retaliating to another and these endless conflicts. And it seems to me that what Mozart, through his music and through his choice of storylines, was always striving for, maybe because of his complicated relationship with his father without being too Freudian about it, um, Strove to create a, a world, a sound world, and, a, and a, a, a world picture where where there was resolution and and um, 
forgiveness and you know release. And I think I think for me when when you step away from all that, it's funny how over the course of having my own company that specialises in Mozart to begin with, it was always repertoire, repertoire. And now, you know, if we suddenly did Rake's Progress one year and maybe became neoclassical opera or something, <laughs> that wouldn't really feel to me like a massive jump because I think it's, it's the, the spirit that Mozart's music has is, is just such an important message. And I think, talking about the operas, because we know what the storylines are, but I think it's equally true of a lot of the instrumental music as well. And, of course, other composers. But I, I, I think it's... Um, I think that's why he stays central in my head and heart, because it, it, it is, it is um, a vehicle for, for change and perception and understanding and compassion, always compassion. You know, they're, they're, they aren't really baddies in Mozart operas. You know, no. Everything is, is three-dimensional and you, you have empathy and sympathy because of the music. You've been listening to a thoroughly good classical music podcast available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. Please rate, like and share the podcast with whomever you think might be interested. Get in contact by tweeting me, John Jacob, at thoroughlygood on Twitter or you can email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me. Thank you very much for listening.